Hello and a very warm welcome to the Word Live podcast. My name is Nigel Bynan, I'm the director of Word Live, and I'm really pleased you've chosen to join us. This podcast is going to play out some of the great talks we've had at past events. We'll publish one each Monday and we really hope and pray that it will bless and encourage you. We're going to start with some talks by Vaughan Roberts on the book of Job. These are so helpful in how we handle the suffering we can experience and where we find God is in all of that. I hope that it helps you in your walk with the Lord. So here's a reading from Job and then Vaughan. We have four passages today. So please turn to Job chapter 38, verse 1 to 11 for the first passage. Job chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its fittings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Now continue at chapter 40, verse 1. To verse 14. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's, and can your voice thunder like this? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor, and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Continue at chapter 41, verse 1. To 11. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as your slave for life? 
Can you make a pet of it like a bird, or put it on a leash for the young women in your house? Will traders barter for it? Will they divide it up among the, ma- the merchants? Can you fill its hide with harpoons or its head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Continuing at chapter forty-two, verse one to six. Then Job replied to the Lord, "I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted." You asked, "Who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge?" Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, "Listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me." My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Thank you for that、uh, reading, and thank you very much, those who've been concerned about my leg. I've had all sorts of、uh, suggested treatments as I've. Uh, stumbled around the site. Someone very kindly suggested amputation. <laughs> I don't think we, we're going to head quite there. It's very nice to be back at Word Alive. I came to all the early Word Alives, and、uh, it's been a few years since I've been back. And this time is significantly more comfortable than the early days. In the early days, I used to work with students, and I would stay in、uh, a chalet with students. And I have some very grim memories. I have to say. Of those early days, the the lowest moment was the morning after I drank my cup of coffee, where someone had said, "I thought we didn't have any filters," and the student said, "No, I improvised." So we asked him what he did. He said, "I use my sock."、Uh, he's now a, a distinguished preacher, but I'm not going to reveal his name. It wouldn't be fair on his wife. I don't think she'd ever enjoy a cup of coffee made by him again. It's been a privilege to study the Book of Job with you, and I've had、uh, the huge privilege of spending quite a long time reading through the Book of Job. And I'm sure, like me, there are still lots of questions. Well, by the end of this talk, many of them will be unanswered. But I hope we'll receive what Job received—not the intellectual answers to all our questions. But a vision of the living God, and that changes everything. So let's pray as we begin. Loving Father, please open our eyes that we might see the Lord Jesus as we think and study Your Word, and give us, as we see Him, such a sense of Your Majesty, Your power, Your amazing grace. That we'd be able to persevere in this fallen world, looking forward to the glory that is to come, and we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. If you were here for the first talk, you remember I began by describing a very chilling scene from that film Train Spotting. 
a baby dies. The mother shrieks in agony. No one says a word. And then at last, someone says to Mark Renton, one of the, the drug addicts in the scene, say something, Mark, say something. And he simply injects himself and says, I'm going to cook up. He says nothing. There's a certain logic in his response. In a godless world, there is nothing to say in the face of suffering. Stuff happens. That's it. But something must be said. And what can be said in the face of suffering? That's the question that's raised by the book of Job. A man who was as great as any in the whole of the East, and yet he loses everything. What can be said? But his friends come alongside him on the rubbish tip. They say not a word for a whole week. It's Job who breaks the silence. And when he speaks in chapter 3, that long lament, he gives no answers. It's full of questions. Why? 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 And then his friends do speak. Actually, it would have been better if they hadn't. They just deliver the cruel doctrine of moralism. Job, you're suffering because you sinned. Now, there's been some confusion about this as I've chatted to people. And they say, surely there is a connection between sin and suffering. And you're right, there certainly is a connection between sin and suffering. If it wasn't for human sin, there'd be no suffering in the world. The fall is the cause of all the suffering. But that's the general answer. We mustn't individualize it and say it's because of your individual sin that you're individually suffering. The Bible will not let us do that. Sometimes that is the case. We sin and we take the consequences. But there are plenty of other times when people sin terribly and in this life don't face the consequences and others are comparatively innocent and they suffer greatly. Job, we know from the beginning of this book, is not suffering because of his own personal sin. In fact, he's very righteous. It's his righteousness that sets up this great challenge at the beginning of the book between God and Satan. So the friends speak with their moralism. Job then speaks in response, and we have a tit-for-tat through the central chapters of the book. He's proclaiming his innocence. He's not claiming perfection, but he is a man of integrity. He cries out to God, God, you're attacking me. It's not right. And he pleads for the opportunity to present his case to God. And every speech from Job then receives a response from one of these friends. They're offended on God's behalf at the way in which Job is speaking. And as the chapters go through, there's an increasing dramatic tension. We need resolution. What's God thinking about all this? Does he agree with Job's friends? Does he agree with Job? What's he going to say? But there's silence from heaven. God says not a word. Then the third cycle peters out before it's complete. The friends have nothing else to say. And Job concludes his speeches. As it were, he signs off. That happens at the end of chapter 31. 
31 verse 35. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. And then a few words later, we read the words of Job are ended. He's ended effectively by saying, say something, God. Here's my defense. I'm signing it. Now, what are you going to say to that? And once again, there's silence from heaven. Someone else begins to speak. He's called Elihu. And he delivers four speeches that come in 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37. Six whole chapters devoted to the speeches of Elihu. And opinions are divided as to what we're to make of what Elihu says. Some people say, oh, same as. He's just saying much the same as the other friends. He's a young upstart. He's rather full of himself. And with arrogance, he's presuming to tell Job where he's wrong, just like the other friends. Others take a more positive view. And I've changed my mind. I was in the negative camp. The more I've read what Elihu says, the more I think, actually, he is speaking sense. He's speaking wisdom. He certainly claims to be a prophet of God. He doesn't simply spout moralism. Well, whichever way you go with this, and it's not entirely clear, Even if he is a representative of God, and I lean towards that view, he's not God himself. And that's what Job is longing for. By this stage of the book, as we've followed through the chapters, it's what we're longing for. Say something, God. Job longs for a word from God so that there's no doubt anymore as to what he actually thinks. We've heard many, many words from Job, from the friends, from Elihu. What has God got to say? And maybe you're asking that question. And it's a question that doesn't stay in your mind. It's a question deep within your heart. God, say something. The pain of the world, the pain in my life, the pain in my friends seems so destructive and so pointless. Say something, God. Maybe you felt there's been a long silence from heaven. Well, after the very, very long central chapters of the book of Job, we are longing for God to speak. And chapter 38, verse 1, comes as a very dramatic moment. Then, the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. At last, the Lord spoke. That's the covenant name for God. It's the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. It's the God who commits himself in covenant love to his people and keeps his promises. And he speaks out of the storm. Well, it's quite easy to imagine such a moment, isn't it, today with the storm raging outside. Why does he speak out of the storm? It's reminding us that this God is no easy presence. You can't, as it were, waltz into his presence. He's a God to be feared. On Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, God spoke out of the storm to his people. This is a God to be feared and revered. He's a God of awesome power and holiness. The Lord spoke out of the storm. 
He's an awesome God. But he's a God of amazing love. He's the God who made the universe, and yet he cares about individuals. He's seen what has happened to Job. He's in control of what happens to Job. He cares about what has happened to Job, and now he speaks to Job. And there followed two speeches. And they're really not what we would expect after what has gone before. God in his speeches makes absolutely no reference to what Job has been saying or to what the friends have been saying. No reference whatsoever from beginning to end. He makes no attempts in an intellectual, philosophical sense to answer the questions that Job has been raising. Instead, God asks Job questions, lots of them. A barrage of questions, one after the other after the other. In the first speech, chapters 38 to 39, 50 questions. In fact, over 50. The second speech, chapter 40 and 41, 18 more questions. And when you first read it, it doesn't seem very satisfying. Isn't this what politicians do? They're asked questions, but it's not the question they really want to be answered, uh, want, to, want to answer, and so instead they respond with questions of their own. It's a kind of tactic to get away from an uncomfortable situation. You can imagine what Jeremy Paxman would say in this situation. Answer the question, God. Answer the question. And he'd go on and say it 68 times probably. But actually, this satisfies Job. He's given what he longs for. And that's far more important to him than a philosophical answer to the problem of evil. What he gets is an encounter with the living God. His problem, you see, is really not philosophical. It's relational. His question, all through the previous chapters, fundamentally is, is God for me? All the circumstances suggest otherwise, and that is agony for Job. The thought that the God that he loved seems to be against him. God, are you really against me? I can't bear existence if you're against me. Are you for me, God? And this response convinces him. Yes, God is for him. He's there and he cares. Chapter 42, verse 5. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And isn't that what we need to be ready for the suffering that might come? Isn't it what we need to endure in the suffering that might be something we're having to face right now? In the midst of suffering, we actually don't need philosophical answers to questions. We need to know that God is there and that he cares. We need that personal encounter with the living God. That's what Job gets. And here in these last chapters of Job, we're able to see three, at least a glimpse of, three great realities to do with God. First, God's wisdom. He knows what he's doing. That's the first speech. Second, God's power. Nothing can stop him doing it. That's the second speech. 
And then third, the epilogue, God's grace. His plans are wonderful. So the first speech we'll begin with, God's wisdom. He knows what he's doing. Job, of course, had questioned the wisdom of God. He'd questioned God's government of the world. Chapter 38, verse 2. God then speaks to him and says, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Now do notice, God is not agreeing with the friends. He's not convicted, Job rather, is not convicted of the secret sins that his friends say he must have committed for him to be suffering this kind of way. God, in the end, actually vindicates Job, as we'll see. He's not being punished. And yet he hasn't always said what's right. Not least in the way he seems to have questioned the way God runs the world. And that's what God is responding to at this point. He says, verse 3, brace yourself like a man. I will question you. And you shall answer me. That's the right way around, isn't it? Benjamin Jowett was the master of Balliol College, Oxford, in the 19th century. He was once asked, what's your view of God? He replied, I should think it a great impertinence were I to express my opinion of God. The only constant anxiety of my life is to know what is God's opinion of me. That's the, the right way around. It's not God who's in the dock, but we are. And so comes a whole series of questions about the world. God begins with creation, verse 4. Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know there's great irony there, isn't there? Oh, you're such an expert. You've been presuming to tell me how to run the world. Well, presumably then you were involved at creation, were you? Just remind me, because I, I don't seem to remember you being around at that point. Verse 6. On what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. It's wonderful poetry. It describes the great joy that God had in creating such a wonderful world and how the whole of creation and the angels joined in in a wonderful chorus of praise to the almighty, sovereign, loving creator who produced such an amazing world. God did that. Job did not. He's the creator of the universe who's in control over all that he's made. Verse 8, who shut up the sea behind doors when it bursts forth from the womb? You may know, to the Hebrew mind, the sea was a symbol of disorder and chaos. And God is saying, what you fear, I'm in complete control of. In fact, I made it. In very bold imagery, he's really saying, the sea is my baby. I was there when it came out of the womb, end of verse 8, and I put it in nappies, verse 9. I made the clouds its, its garment, I wrapped it in thick darkness. And I set the boundaries of the sea, I put it in its playpen, so that it couldn't get out, it was in control. Verse 10, I fixed limits for it, 
and set its doors and bars in place. I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. We humans can't do that. King Canute tried and failed. But God controls the sea and the waves. Verse 12, have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? And I didn't think so, Job. But the sun only comes up in the morning by my divine command. I've got the whole world in my hands. Verse 31 and 32. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Are you in control of the stars? No, I don't think you are, Job. But I made them all. President Roosevelt, the most powerful man in the world, had a custom at the end of long meetings when there were discussing great affairs of state. Before they went to bed, he'd take his ministers out to look at the night sky. And he'd say to them, look there. That's the lower left-hand corner of the great square of Pegasus. And then he said, can't you see a little small blur? It's just hazy, but there it is. That's the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It's as large as the Milky Way. It's one of 100 million galaxies. It's over 750 light years from us, and it contains 100 billion stars. Now I think we feel small enough. Let's go to bed. It does put even the most powerful people in the world into perspective. We're tiny little pygmies compared to the God who made the stars and controls the stars. He's in charge not just of the universe up there, but of everything on earth, even the animals. There are wonderful descriptions in these verses. We haven't got time to look at them in detail. Of the mountain goat, the wild donkey, the ostrich, the mighty war horse, the graceful, majestic eagle soaring in the sky. Read it. It's amazing poetry. And it's all designed to put us in our place When we have a hard time, our vision tends to narrow. That can happen circumstantially. You're sick and you're confined to your bed, or you can't get out of hospital. And what used to be quite a big world, meeting lots of people, is now a very small world, but it can happen psychologically as well. You get turned in on yourself. All you can think about is the pain you're feeling, and the world becomes smaller. And God takes us out of ourselves. He says, look at the night sky. Do you see the stars? I made them all. Look at the countryside. Look at the animals in the world around. I made them all. Don't just look at these things. That can change, can't it? It can change our mood. We go out for a country walk and a walk by the sea, and we feel better. But he's saying, don't just see the sea and the stars. Recognize that I made them all. Look beyond them. See the creator who controls them, and not only controls them, cares for them. Chapter 39, verse 1. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? I know every single one of those animals. 
Oh, you understand, don't you? In your family, you probably know exactly how long your niece or your wife or your daughter-in-law has got until she gives birth. You know the days, the months, but I know every animal that intimately. That's the kind of God I am. And at the end of that, Job responds, chapter 40, verse 2, Oh, rather, the Lord says to Job 40 verse 2, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. During the 1945 general election, Clement Ackley, the leader of the Labour Party, was plagued by constant missives from the chairman of the party, Harold Lasky. And after one which particularly annoyed him, and they've been going on day after day after day. Clement Adley wrote a little letter, and it said, a period of silence from you would be most welcome. And it's as if God, at the end of this speech, is saying, Job, thank you very much for all your speeches, telling me how I could run the world a bit better. Really appreciate all that, but from now on, a period of silence from you would be most welcome. You've said enough, and Job gets the point verse 3 of chapter 40, Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I'll say no more. That's God's wisdom. He knows what he's doing. Second speech, God's power, chapter 40 and 41. God's power, you see, not only does he know what he's doing, Nothing can stop him doing it. Look at chapter 40 and verse 6. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. It's the same beginning as the first speech. Man up. Let's get the tables turned. I'm going to question you. Verse 8. Would you discredit my justice. Would you condemn me to justify yourself? That's what seems to have been happening. To justify himself as innocent, he's had to condemn God as being unjust. And in so doing, he's setting himself up as the judge of the universe. And there's rich irony in what God says after that. Go on then, Job. If you want the job as the ruler of the universe and as the judge of the universe, let's see how you get on. Verse 10, adorn yourself with glory and splendor. Clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Here's my judge's wig and gown. Why don't you put them on? Over to you, Job. You run the world for a little while. Verse 11, unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Go on, you deal with the evil and the pride in the world. And if you manage, well, I'll abdicate. I'll hand over to you. Verse 14, then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. And of course, it's utterly ridiculous. Job can't judge the world. He's way out of his depth. Only God has the power to exercise justice. Only God has the power to conquer evil. And then for the rest of the speech, God's authority 
is made clear by the way in which he has complete power over two very mysterious creatures. There's the behemoth, which is the second half of chapter 40. And the viathan, that's the whole of chapter 41. They are terrifying creatures. And as you read through them, you're trying to work out which animals are they. And some people have said there seems to be a similarity between the behemoth and the hippo, between leviathan and the crocodile. So what's going on here? Some people think God is really making the same point that he's made in the first speech. He's just saying, with a particular focus on two creatures, I'm in complete control of the whole creation, and you're not Job. But if that's all he's saying, it just doesn't fit with the introduction to this second speech, where God questions Job's ability to administer justice and to deal with evil. How does the fact that God can tame the hippo and the crocodile answer that question? It doesn't seem to bear any relation to what he's just said. And nor does this understanding of these speeches explain the profound impact that the speech has on Job. After the first speech, he puts his hand over his mouth and says he won't speak again. But after the second, he goes much, much further in his worship of God. And nor does this interpretation do justice, I suggest to you, to the text itself. There's a supernatural quality to these descriptions. Most obviously, the description about Leviathan. Glance at chapter 41 and verse 20 and 21. Smoke pours from its nostrils as from a boiling pot over burning reeds. Its breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from its mouth. You ever seen an animal like that? I've never seen a crocodile that breathes flames. And you might say, well, this is poetic justice, isn't it? Well, it seems to go a long way beyond poetic justice. Now, I don't think this can be simply a normal creature in the world. Let me suggest what I think is going on. In the ancient world, and certainly in the cultures in the surrounding region, there were lots of myths about monsters, sea monsters, dragons. They represented evil spiritual forces. And the Bible seems to pick up on those myths and those creatures being described in other cultures and uses them as symbols of evil spiritual forces, satanic power. I suppose the equivalent today might be if we were speaking in, in, the, in the youth event and said God is far more powerful than Voldemort. And Voldemort doesn't actually exist. It's a character from fiction, from the Harry Potter novels, but there Voldemort represents evil. Supernatural evil. And it seems that the Bible picks up on these images from other cultures and says, God has complete control over these spiritual forces, these sea creatures and so on. You get this in a number of passages in the Bible. In fact, in Job chapter 3 and verse 8, Leviathan is mentioned and seems to be referring there to some kind of supernatural evil. It certainly seems that in Psalm 74, where the psalmist describes the Exodus in terms of God breaking the heads of the sea monsters, crushing the heads of Leviathan. In redeeming his people from slavery in Egypt, God achieved a great spiritual battle against evil. 
the book of Revelation picks up on this imagery. In chapter 12, the devil's described as a dragon. Again, picking up on Leviathan-type imagery. The friends and Job have no place for Satan in their debates. Job says to God, your hand has been against me. But we know that God's hand has not been directly against Job. He allowed the hand of Satan to go against Job. The world is more complicated than we think. God is not the only spiritual power. There is great evil. There is spiritual forces at work in the world, and we are powerless against cosmic evil. We little human beings have no control against it. And yet these wonderful descriptions of the Behemoth and Leviathan underline the fact that these cosmic forces are under God's control completely. And God says to Job, Job, okay, you want a judge, do you? Well, let's have a test case. If you're going to ultimately control evil and, and defeat it, let's see how you get on against Leviathan, shall we? Chapter 40, verse 1. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Let's see how you get on. Chapter 41. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fishhook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you control Leviathan? How about making it a pet, verse 5? Can you make a pet of it like a bird or put it on a leash for the young woman in your house? Do you remember the days when your kids were young, Job, and they kept nagging you for a pet? Well, just imagine, instead of doing the boring thing and going for a dog or a cat or a gerbil, why not try a Leviathan for a pet? I mean, that'd be different, something for the kids to brag about at school, wouldn't it? Go on, get a Leviathan, put a lead around its neck, let's see how you get on. You'd have a lovely time with the family, wouldn't you? Verse 8, if you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Believe me, Job, you wouldn't do that twice. You will not come out alive. You don't want a Leviathan in the house, I can tell you. Verse 9, any hope of subduing it is, is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? If you're scared to take him on, you should be more scared to take me on, Job. And believe me, those two creatures, they are no match for me. Now, I'm in complete control over them. The behemoth, for instance, chapter 40, verse 19, it ranks first among the works of God, yet its maker can approach it with his sword. It's very humbling and very comforting. There are times in our lives when we feel overwhelmed by the forces of evil. We've got no control over them. Evil seems to win, and there's nothing we can do about it. And the modern world says to us, why are you going on talking about evil? There's no such thing as evil. There's no such thing as, as the devil or cosmic spiritual forces. But the Bible says, no, there is such a thing. There is a devil. Satan exists. Demon exists. You are right to be afraid. But Satan is under the control of God. Satan is God's pet. 
He's on a leash. He can't ultimately prevail. No power can prevent God from fulfilling his purposes. And in the end, at last, Job recognizes that. Chapter 42, verse 2, Job replied, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. He's really saying, God, I was out of my depth. Verse 3, I spoke of things I didn't understand, things too wonderful to know. There's so much hidden from me, so much hidden about the spiritual battle behind the world, I just hadn't factored that in. He hasn't got answers to all his questions. If anything, there are more questions, aren't there? Where did this Leviathan, this behemoth, where did the devil come from? How did God allow such power for spiritual forces in the world? Why does he let them do these things? There are no answers to those questions in the book of Job. But what Job receives is all he needs. His attitude is completely changed. Verse 5, my ears had heard of you but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Repent? He's not accepting what his friends had said was right. He's not repenting of secret sins in the past. He's rather repenting for his attitude in defending himself and therefore accusing God and questioning God's justice. I shouldn't have questioned you, God. I should have trusted in your goodness and your justice. The friends had encouraged Job to respond to his suffering with self-accusation. Job responded with self-pity. And now at last he comes to a place of self-surrender. What's changed? Verse 5, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. He's had a personal encounter with God. One of my very favorite poets is George Herbert, the 17th century poet, a brilliant man, He was an MP at a young age. A great future lay ahead of him in public affairs, but he left all that behind, and he chose to become a vicar of a small little country parish in Wiltshire. And one day, he's reflecting on the contrast between his old existence where he was a power in the land and his current existence where he was in some little backwater, and he's frustrated. And the poem begins with his frustration. I struck the board and cried no more. I will abroad. I've had enough of this. I'm out of here. That's what he's saying in the poem. Where am I going? I'm going nowhere. It's a waste of life. I should go back to where I belong. And he rages and rages throughout the poem. And then right at the end, there's a wonderful, sudden mood shift. But as I raved and grew more fierce and wild at every word. Methoughts I heard one calling child. And I replied, my Lord. And that changed everything. So much frustration, but when God spoke, as it were, and reminded him, you belong to me, you're my much-loved child. Oh, my Lord. 
It changed everything. And that's what happened for Job. God spoke. And his words remind him that there is a God in heaven who cares, who's in control. It doesn't answer all his questions. But he gets what he needs. His raging is over. God has spoken. Job had to wait a long time for God to speak. And still he trusted God. But God has spoken to us before any suffering has come our way. Because the most powerful way in which God has spoken is through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who says to all who come to know him, you're my child. That changes everything. God's wisdom, he knows what he's doing. God's power, nothing can stop him doing it. And then finally, as we draw to a close, the epilogue from verse 7 to the end of the book. God's grace, God's grace, his plans are good. Look at verse 7. After the Lord had said these things, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Sure, Job had spoken out of turn, He's been rebuked for questioning the justice of God. But he's commended and his friends are condemned. What's the difference between them? They were wedded to a theological system. They were determined to defend the system, whatever. But it seems they had no real relationship with God. Whereas Job, for all his faults, never lets go of God. If you read through all of Job's speeches, all his thoughts and feelings are directed towards God. All his frustrations, his anger, his pleading, all focused on God. There's a relationship there. And as one writer has brilliantly put it, God reads between the lines and listens to Job's heart. And he recognizes Job doesn't want a philosophical response. He wants to meet with God. That's what he's longing for. All the way through, he's in relationship with God. Right at the beginning, do you remember, God speaks to the servant, uh, to to the Satan rather, and says, have you considered my servant Job? Well, that word servant is a title. It speaks of an intimate connection. Moses was the servant of God. The prophets in the Old Testament are the servants of God. The servant of God is an intimate, one in the very closest circle to God. That's what Job was at the beginning. Have you considered my servant Job? And now notice at the end, 42 verse 7, you haven't spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. God was right, you see. He's proved to be a real believer. Even when everything's taken away from him, he doesn't give up. And at the end of his trial, at this point, remember, he's still got nothing. But he worships and trusts God. And then verse 8, in a lovely way, he's told to pray for his friends and make sacrifices for them. There's the grace of God. 
allowing the innocent man to offer sacrifices for the wicked, just as Christ, the perfectly innocent one, offered his life as a sacrifice for us. And then Job is restored. Verse 10. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. Verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, and so it goes on. He's even more wealthy than he was before. Verse 16, after this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so Job died, an old man and full of years. It's the Bible's equivalent of, and they all lived happily ever after. What do you make of that ending? Some feel it spoils everything. Job had been such a real book, and now we've left reality. In the real world, yes, people suffer, but in the real world, they don't always get resolution. In fact, they very rarely get resolution like this in this life. It doesn't seem to work, as some people read the book of Job. Well, it may be true that often in this life there isn't resolution. But justice must be done. And the Bible insists justice will be done. Not necessarily in this world. And what we have in Job's restoration is a foretaste of the restoration of all things in the world to come. And in the meantime, be patient. James chapter 5 picks up on the story of Job. James writes to suffering believers. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And then comes the application. Be patient, therefore, until the Lord's coming. Job isn't perfect. Not least in the way he asks his questions of God, questioning God's justice. But he's a model for us, says the New Testament, of perseverance through suffering. And we have much, much, much more to go on than he ever had. Because Christ has already come. And we're to be following the example of Job, persevering to the end, looking forward to the future. The book of Revelation describes in the central chapters some of the horrific sufferings that come in a fallen world. They describe life between the ascension of Christ and his return. And horrific things are unleashed. Natural disasters, terrible diseases, awful persecution, satanic attacks. Yes, Satan has been cast down from heaven by the death and resurrection of Christ, but he hasn't given up. And in his death throes that go on for centuries, he tries to take lots of people down with him. This is reality. Suffering goes on. But we're not left on our own. We have a vision of God. Just as Job got his vision of God. 
And the great sufferings of the central chapters of Revelation are framed by two great realities that we must always bear in mind in the midst of the sufferings of this world. Before these horrific visions are described, we read, John looked up, Revelation 4 and 5, and I saw a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. It's not empty. Bear in mind that there's a sovereign God. We were told that at the beginning of the book of Job. He's in control. Revelation 4, there's a throne in heaven and there's someone sitting on it. God is in control. And then Revelation 5, I saw on the throne someone like a lamb looking as if it'd been slain. The sovereign God is the Savior God. The Lord Jesus Christ, the absolutely perfectly innocent one who suffered on earth far more than any of us has ever suffered or ever could suffer, and then rose again. He's in control, the one who is sovereign and loving. That's one reality we're allowed to see. And our sufferings come in the midst of the frame. One side, there is a God in heaven who reigns, the sovereign saviour, and the other is the great picture of the new creation. John looks, and he said, I saw... Out of heaven, the new Jerusalem coming down is a perfect new creation. And Christ, the bridegroom, is united to his church, the bride. And every tear is wiped away. And there'll be none of those awful S's. There'll be no sin, no Satan, no suffering, no sickness, no separation. God and his people, together forever. Brothers and sisters, There are lots of confusions in the midst of the massive pain of this world. But we've been given what Job was given, a vision of the living God who reigns as the sovereign saviour and who will one day come back and bring absolute restoration, not just for us individually, but for all things. And in the meantime, follow the great example of godly Job persevering through suffering in hope. Let me pray. Father, help us in the midst of, for some here, very great suffering to see you as you are, the sovereign saviour, and to see the glorious future that's guaranteed through Christ, and then to persevere For Jesus' sake. Amen. This talk was recorded at Word Alive 2016. Word Alive is here to serve the church in reaching the world. Our desire is to resource individuals and churches and empower them in their mission to communities and the wider world. For further information and to hear more talks from this and previous events, please visit our website at wordaliveevent.org.